You are listening to Humanities Unbound, a public humanities podcast produced by Taft Research Center, a center dedicated to excellence in humanities and social science research located at the University of Cincinnati. Taft Research Center is generously funded by the Charles Phelps Taft Memorial Fund. My name is Caitlin Lusher. I'm a graduate assistant at the Taft Research Center and host the Research Spotlight series for Humanities Unbound. The Research Spotlight series focuses on the current Taft Center Fellows. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Leila Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Rodriguez's research focuses on unaccompanied and undocumented minors in Cincinnati. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you for joining me today. So you are one of the Taft Center Fellows this year for 2019-2020. And so today I'd like to hear more about your research and how how your project is engaging with conversations that are going on today about immigration and child migrants. So just to start, uh, tell me a little bit about your current research that you're doing at the Taft Center this year. Yes, so I am working on a book manuscript that stems from my latest research project on the integration of underage, undocumented, unaccompanied migrants. And I'm writing it from a public anthropology perspective, meaning that it is geared towards a broader policymaking audience. And I'm doing so from a theoretical current that seeks to highlight the conditions under which positive outcomes can emerge from negative social contexts. Okay, great. Thank you. So uh, why did you want to research this population in particular? So what drew you to them? Well, this began a couple years ago, and I had wrapped up a previous project when the College of Arts and Sciences began its Cincinnati Project Initiative. And that seeks to connect scholars to the broader Cincinnati community. So at the time, a request a request came in from a local migrant serving organization, the Sukasa Hispanic Center, um, for research into this population. And I was already interested in them, so it all just kind of came together. But what drew me to them is the fact that I think they're among the most vulnerable of all migrants, and that with few exceptions, we tend to ignore sort of their needs and their agency. Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, you've mentioned in the past, uh, meaning in like other interviews, that refugees often migrate to escape dangerous situations in their home countries due to climate change and political violence, just to name a couple reasons. But then when they migrate to the U.S., they face hostility and what you call the politics of fear. Um, because uh, so they they face politics of fear because of rising anti-immigrant sentiments and nationalism. So how do these conditions affect children who migrate, and how do unaccompanied minors fend for themselves when faced with these difficult circumstances? Well, I'll figure out exactly how they do it as I analyze my data and write the book manuscript. Um, but in essence, you know, youth are no different than adults in that they have some agency when they in what they do, um, but they're also simultaneously constrained by structural factors. So the idea behind the book is not to portray the hardships that they face in Cincinnati or that they face back home or, you know, on the way here, uh, but precisely to highlight how they survive, you know, how they adapt, change, contribute overcome and yes, even thrive, right? And this happens with the right combination of support and getting out of their way, right? So it doesn't just depend on them. It also depends on how the rest of us here talk about them, 
behave towards them and write rules about them. Right. So what are some ways that um, you've noticed that people have treated um, child migrants before? Well, before treating them, there's sort of the uh, mental structures, right? Like how you think about them, right. and that's reflected in how you talk about them and, and how you act towards them, right? But I think in general, not just in Cincinnati, but in the U.S. and really the world at large, there's sort of two extremes, right? So there are the people who um, choose to view them as invaders, as criminals, as, you know, job stealers, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think on the other end of the spectrum, there are, you know, well-meaning academics, nonprofit workers, um, you know, who view them as um, people that need protection, people who are victims. And I have a problem with both of those extremes. They're just people. And mm. I'm hoping to, to show that, you know, this is how they do it, right? Yeah, so it's in, in a way, it's sort of about like uh, humanizing this population we talk about so much. Yes, exactly, right? I mean, they're not criminals and they can be vulnerable, but they can also figure things out on their own, right? And so I think we have to be very careful about how we treat them. Right, yeah. So so it's so infrequent for children um, in any population to really be given any kind of agency. So, um, yeah, I think yeah, I definitely can. I definitely can see that. Um, so related to that, um, how do uh, how do the experiences of children uh, migrants compare to the impacts on adult migrants? Well. As I said, you know, they're in in some ways they're very similar. And our children and adults are are just people. Um, I think you know adults tend to have more agency. So migrant children are not just constrained um, by what the rest of us do here in the community, but they're also constrained by their own families, right? In ways that perhaps adults are not. So quite frequently, when immigration policies are discussed in politics or on the news, migrant populations from all over the world are lumped into the same category simply as immigrants. So why is it important to specifically focus on the daily lives of unaccompanied children who enter via the U.S.-Mexico border specifically, including Central and South American migrants? Well, I like the term displaced people uh, mm. or peoples because it doesn't attempt to classify them a priori. Um, I mean, I think it's important to focus on displaced peoples in general all over the world because this is not something new and this is not something abnormal, right? The movement of humans is um, extremely common and, you know, this is what humans do, right? We move and we adapt. Um, but in you know, current world conditions, we're only going to see more of this, right? And so I think we need to just normalize it, that this is part and parcel of being a human being. Um, but whether there is anything conceptually distinctive about unaccompanied minors is a question that I myself had when embarking on this project. And with time, I have learned that yes, right? So first, uh, being undocumented, but also underage, they're subject to particular policies that don't necessarily apply to other migrants 
migrants and to adult migrants. Um, second, the familial relationships tend to differ from those of other child migrants. So many of them were left behind by their parents at very young ages, sometimes as early as the toddler years. And now they come to the US to reunite with their uh, parents as teenagers. And so the relationship is different and the emotional ties to the parents can be very different from those of kids who grew up and simultaneously migrated with the parents. Um, and I guess third, sadly, in the current political climate, um, because of the mo emotional reaction that people tend to have towards children, they're also being used as political pawns. Mm, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about these policies you mentioned earlier that tend to affect children more often? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot, uh, but I suppose the main one is that if they are detained um, at the border by Border Patrol, they're not automatically deported. Um, they are moved into the custody of the Office for Refugee uh, Resettlement, and they are kept um, in their centers um, oftentimes for months if and until um, a parent or some other suitable caretaker is found in the US, right? And when this happens, it's it's a long process, I'm oversimplifying it, uh, but they're usually released into the custody of these people. Um, sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a more distant relative. Um, and if they literally have no adult in the US who can take care of them, often they go into sort of um, foster care kinds of systems. Um, so that's, that's really the main difference. But um, I have to emphasize that again, in the current uh, political climate, everything is in flux and everything is a little bit chaotic. And so sometimes it's hard to keep up with what exactly is happening to these kids right now. Right. Yeah, because we see so much in the news about um, just these, for lack of a better word, um, concentration camps for children on the border. And it's just, I'm not even sure if I can really articulate it. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was partly why I wanted to ask, because it's something that we see here so often in the news that, um, thank you. So uh, you describe your current work as a public anthropology project since it engages with conversations beyond your discipline. Because of the broader public dis discussion around m immigration, you have said before that you have been asked to write affidavits about the issue to lawyers, which is an example of how social scientists become more like activists and advocates for the people they work with. So uh, with that in mind, what do you see as your public role then in your research on unaccompanied minors in Cincinnati and how will your research benefit Cincinnati in particular? Well, I hope that the book will provide a blueprint for what works best in ensuring that the integration of young migrants is as positive as possible for them, their families, and also the communities into which they integrate. And so with some community partners, I am planning to speak with local policymakers and provide them with data and some suggestions on how we can all work together to make sure that these kids and their families have the tools to be full members of our Cincinnati community and not just another population in the city that will remain stagnated in poverty generation after generation. Um, there are many ways, I think, to define activism and to do activism. And because of my interests and my personality, I believe that my activism is best rooted in providing quality scholarship to those who make decisions and advocate on behalf of others so that good choices are made. 
Yes, excellent. Thank you. So uh, speaking of community partners, uh, a few years ago, you partnered with Sucasa uh, Hispanic Center, and I know you mentioned them earlier, as part of your fellowship with the Cincinnati Project. So um, how does Sucasa and your involvement in the community currently influence your research with the project you're working on now? Well, this was the first time that I conducted a project in alliance with non-academics, and working with Sukasa has been a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, some aspects were surprising. Uh, nonprofits don't work the way that academia works. Um, you know, having to undergo their own ethical review process, or uh, the fact that my colleagues there often need permission from their higher ups before they can add their name to any public statement that stems from the project. Like that was different. But most of all, I have had the chance to work closely with a group of community people, you know, their educators, their activists, their healthcare um, personnel, many others who are, to be honest, some of the hardest working, most caring and committed people that I have met in this city. And so we continue to think of further initiatives on which we collaborate. And I'm happy to be able to call some of them my friends. That's wonderful. Yeah, uh, working with a community partner, can really provide perspective that academics just don't have access to. Um, because sometimes like the community partners, they're the ones doing the kind of like on the ground work. Um, and then, you know, as academics, sometimes it's like we are writing about it, but we're maybe not as firmly entrenched. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're, they have been um, sources of, of data for me, but they're also the doers, right? And so mm-hmm. any idea that I have, they'll think of ways of implementing it, and it's just fantastic. Absolutely, yes, to, uh, absolutely agree. Uh, earlier you are talking about how um, you know your activism can help with like policy. So how else do you plan to share your knowledge beyond academia? For example, with Sukasa and other organizations, the city of Cincinnati and or policy slash advocacy networks? Well, I have a full plan of attack. All <laughs> so right. Awesome. I am working on, you know, your standard journal articles and conference presentations for my academic communities. Uh, I'm working on this book manuscript for policymaking and not profit kinds of audiences. And also this local sort of policy tour that I mentioned. Um, you know, I'm still working through the data, but Honestly, once I'm finished, I would love to talk to anyone who's willing to listen. Wonderful. Um, So last couple questions here. So uh, this podcast will hopefully be reaching more than just academics, hopefully. And uh, so how can people listening to this interview, academics and non-academics, help unaccompanied and undocumented minors like the ones in your study? So, for example, how can they get involved in immigrant advocacy work? Well, there are multiple local nonprofits that work with migrants and refugees, and they need financial donations, um, donations in kind, and volunteers. Uh, Some that come to mind include Sucasa and Catholic Charities more broadly, the Santa Maria Community Center, Heartfelt Tidbits, the Immigrant Refugee and Law Center, Refugee Connect, and honestly, a lot others. Mm-hmm. Um, but most importantly, I think it's, you know, you need to get educated. You need to educate your friends and your family about them. Immigrants and refugees are a very important part of our community, and they deserve to be fully embraced as such. Absolutely. Uh, just a clarifying question. Uh, those organizations you mentioned, are those mostly local to Cincinnati or are some of those nationwide? These are all local. Okay. Okay. Last question. How has the Taft Research Center benefited your research so far? 
Oh, immensely. There, <laughs> there is no greater gift to a scholar than to have the time and mental space to just think and write. And I see the role of academics in society um, primarily to be critical thinkers, right? Like we're the ones who question everything until the point that it gets annoying. Uh, we're the ones that suggest alternative interpretations for things. You know, we're the ones who collect the data that's necessary to better understand something. And yet, you know, in reality, in our jobs with all the different teaching and service obligations, sometimes we do everything but think, but do research, right? <laughs> and so I feel like just in the short time that I've been a TAF fellow, I have already accomplished so much, perhaps more than the last entire year combined. Um, and, you know, more importantly, I have begun conversing with the other fellows about their projects and I just think they're all brilliant and talking to them is so intellectually stimulating that sometimes I cannot believe that I get to do this for a living, at least for a year. Yes, yes, awesome. And it's funny that you said that, that um, you're, you know, talking with the other fellows has been really helpful because it's, um, when I was interviewing with Derek, he said the same thing and I could see the overlap and that's so cool. So it's, yeah, it's awesome how, um, in the Taft Center, you're almost able to make your own little micro community um, of other academics. So, all right, well, thank you so much for joining me for this interview, but, um, or before we finish, is there anything else that I didn't ask you about your project that you would like to comment on? Just the importance, I think, um, of supporting scholarship, of supporting public universities, of supporting the work that academics do, and, of not being scared to talk to us. I mean, I think that these partnerships between the community and academics just lead to fantastic outcomes. So I'm happy to see more of it happen. All right, thank you so much. The music for Humanities Unbound is Reverie Small Theme and You'll Never Know Where You'll Wake Up, both by Ghost and licensed by the Creative Commons. Humanities Unbound is hosted and executively produced by the Taft Research Center Director, Dr. Amy Lind. Sean Keating Crawford is a producer and manager, and Caitlin Lusher is a producer and the editor for the podcast. Technical equipment and support are provided by the Student Technical Resources Center at the University of Cincinnati and the STRC Director, Jay Sennard. Episode transcripts are transcribed by Carrie Eason and are available on the Taft Research Center website. Stay tuned for more episodes of Humanities Unbound.